for the young men in here, later on in life, if your spouses tell you, if your wife tells you, let's do no presents, this is a trap. Do not fall for this. You get presents. And young ladies, shame on you in advance for pulling this. All right, so <laughs> this year comes, okay? She says the same thing. Let's do no presents this year. Do you think I fell for that? No. I didn't fall for that. So I get her two presents, okay? <clears throat> there, were, there were nice presents. She knew that I got her some presents. So she said, okay, I'm going to get him some. So I wake up Christmas morning. <laughs> this is no joke. A massive box about this big, this big, beautifully wrapped, okay? It's got the, you know, the, um, the paper bags you get from the grocery store, like that nice, thick kind of brown paper. Boxes are wrapped in that. All the edges are taped tight all around, all underneath, and there's a big, beautiful bow all around it. And on the tag, it says, to Matt from Katie. So I'm like, what in the world did she get me? And she's just ear-to-ear grin, so excited to see what this is or see my face when I see it. So I'm ripping through everything, and I open up the box, and there's tons of packing paper, and I finally get to the bottom, and there's a small little tin of butter popcorn that she got from the checkout aisle at Big Lots. Big Lots. And she's just, she is just beside herself, just cracking up laughing. What's the point of the story? I went in looking to this present with different expectations, right? I saw the outside of this big box, and I said, this has got to be something great, and it wasn't something great. So this is the case with Israel. Israel makes these choices in their history based on externals, and God tells them, you're looking at the wrong thing. Okay, so you'll see that this is also the case with God. God makes decisions for us, thankfully, in his faithfulness, that are contrary to the decisions that we would expect him to make. So before we get into our, our passage, I want to do a very quick survey of, the, of our context, okay? So our passage, we're dealing with Samuel, and Samuel is a judge of Israel, okay? So let's back up. Why in the world do we have judges? And I may, I may call on you for some questions. Okay, let's go back to Adam and Eve. We're going back to the beginning, okay? So God makes the world. God makes Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sin, okay? Then what does God do after Adam and Eve sins? What does he do to the world, to the earth? Floods the earth. Then he raises up Noah and Noah's sons, and they come after him. Then a few chapters later in Genesis, God picks a guy that's a pagan moon worshiper. He's a guy that goes out at night, looks up at the sky, and worships the moon. His name is Abraham, and he would become the father of all the nations, and God said that I would bless the nations through him. And then who is Abraham's son? Isaac. And then Isaac had Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons, which we know as the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? Then later on in Israel's history, they're put into captivity in which country? They're put into captivity in Egypt, yep. And this was predicted. The Lord told Abraham that I'm going to make a covenant with you. You will be my people, but one day your people are going to be in captivity for 400 years. And then finally, the Lord hears their cry, and he says, I'm going to send a messenger to them. So he raises up Moses, okay? We're, we're moving along. So we're in Exodus now. So God raises up Moses. He brings the plagues to Egypt, to the Egyptians, and then he frees God's people from the hands of the Egyptians. Then they're wandering through the wilderness, 
and then they stop at which mountain? Mount Sinai. And what happens at Mount Sinai? The Lord gives the people, the Lord gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are the laws by which God would govern his people. And then they work their way eventually through to the promised land. Then God raises up judges, okay? The way the judges would work, God was Israel's king, okay? And he would have a series of judges that would do two things. They would, one, make sure Israel was obeying the law, and then, two, would ward off Israel's enemies. So they kind of acted like military commanders, okay? But then all of a sudden, Israel looked around, and they said, you know what? Other people around us in other countries and other nations, they, they don't look like us. They make different decisions than we make. We kind of want to look like them. Have you all ever made decisions like that? You see friends that either have something, want to do something. Maybe it's not the best idea, but you look at them and you say, you know what? I kind of want to, I don't want to be the weird guy or gal that says, I'm not going to do that. And so you kind of give in to what they want you to do. Have you all had situations like that? Bandwagon fallacy. Very good. (laughs) That's it. That's it. Have you all had those situations? Maybe it's peer pressure. Peer pressure. Bandwagon, the bandwagon fallacy. Yep, yep. If everybody's on the bandwagon, it must be true, so I'm going to jump on. And, uh, but it seems not to be the case. So I, I had an instance in my life where I had a lot of friends, okay? Now listen, after I share this, I need you all to forget this, okay? Is that a deal? So I had a lot of friends. I was 16 years old. And um, they said one night, they said, let's, let's all go get a tongue piercing, okay? Let's get a tongue piercing. And I was like, that's weird. That's strange. I'm not going to get a tongue piercing. They're like, dude, you have to get a tongue piercing. You can't be the only kid in our group that doesn't get a tongue piercing. So I was like, I don't think my parents are going to let me do that. And so I went to my mom and dad. I said, mom and dad, my friends are getting a tongue piercing. Can I get a tongue piercing? They said, absolutely not. What do you think I did? I think we might have an image. Okay. Okay. Now, outside of the tongue piercing, this is a very cool-looking picture. Okay? That's a serious guy. Okay, let's get, let's get rid of the picture. Let's get, let's get rid of the picture. All right. All right. This is good. We need to be, we need to be serious now, okay? <clears throat> All right. We good? Okay. So hopefully, so just, just to be clear, so you don't go tell your parents, this is not an endorsement of getting a tongue piercing. This was a bad decision that I made. My tongue got infected. My dad ended up selling my car, and then he had to take me to school every day my senior year. So not only was I an odd kid with a tongue piercing, I was the one kid my senior year that, whose dad brought him to school every day. So all in all, a very bad decision. Okay, so this is what Israel does. Israel looks around. They see the pagan nations all around them. And just to step more into their history, these are pagan nations that they hate, okay? They're pagan nations that have captured them and have killed many of their people. But then Israel says, but you know what? They have a king, and we really want a king. We want to be just like everybody else. We want that tongue piercing just like everybody else. And so they went to Samuel. Samuel was the prophet and the 
judge that the Lord had given to the Israelites. And they said, Samuel, we don't want to look like us anymore. We want to look like them. And so we want a king. So Samuel goes to the Lord, and Samuel is just weeping, and he is mourning. And he says, they, they, they don't want the setup that you have for them. They, they want different judges. They want to get rid of the judges. They want a king. And the Lord tells Samuel, Samuel, why are you upset? They have not rejected you. They have rejected me. They have not rejected you, Samuel. They do not want me as their king. Okay? <clears throat> so as we move on, what God does, he says, I'm going to grant to them their wish. And he gives them a king. And he was a terrible king. And he ended up disobeying God. He led their men and women into ruin. And they said, what's going on here? This isn't what we, this isn't what we asked for. And so what we're going to look at uh, tonight is God's choices in spite of Israel's choices, okay? This is the passage that we're looking at here. So Saul was removed as the king because of his faithlessness, because of his disobedience. Now there's another king needs to come into the picture. But Samuel is just beside himself. He is torn and upset, not only one, that Israel wanted a king, but then two, that this king of Israel has already failed. So let's, let's go back to 1 Samuel 16, and we're going to work our way through this passage to see what God does, and then ultimately what his choices mean for you and for me today. So this begins in the beginning of chapter 16, and Samuel is mourning. The beginning says, uh, the Lord says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him? You've got to move on, Samuel. I've moved on. Move on. But then Samuel has another objection. Look later on. He says in verse 2, and Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears, he will kill me. Now, why would, Saul be, why would Samuel be upset about this? Saul, as a king, if anybody tried to come in and take Saul's throne, he would kill them. And so Samuel already went to Saul as Israel's prophet and said, look, because of your disobedience, you're going to be removed from the kingdom, okay? So Saul already knows that he will eventually be replaced. And so if he knows that Samuel's going around from town to town, he's going to absolutely know that that's what Samuel is looking to do. But the Lord has a solution. In verse 2, he says, Take a heifer with you, a heifer is a female cow, and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. You see, Samuel as a priest, so this, the temple of Jerusalem was built during Solomon's reign, which is the son of David. So right now, Israel has no temple. And so the priests would go around from town to town and make sacrifices. And so he said, Look, if you just go to the town with a sacrifice, he's not going to be concerned or even think anything. He's not going to think you're going to look for a king. He's going to think you're going to do your priestly duties. Bring a heifer with you and say you're going to make a sacrifice. And while you're there, I want you to invite Jesse. And I will show you what you, all, what you are to do. And you shall anoint for me him that I declare to you. So I'm going to bring you to the town, Samuel. Samuel's freaking out. He's going to kill me. Samuel trust me, okay? I'm going to show you exactly the family who you need to anoint. So Samuel in verse 4 did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling. 
They say, do you come peaceably? Now, let me just ask this. So Samuel's a priest. Why in the world, and we, we know earlier in the book that it says Samuel's very old. Why in the world would the town be fearful of Samuel and ask Samuel, do you come peaceably? Two reasons, okay? A priest in Israel wasn't a, a black-suited guy with a white collar that has a really soft hand when you go to shake his hands. A priest in Israel was a professional butcher. They killed animals constantly in these large animals, so he knew what Samuel was capable of. But there's probably another reason. Samuel, as the judge of Israel, was also their military leader. This is probably what the elders in the city had in mind. Just one chapter earlier, and this is just an interesting passage. In chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, it says in verse 32, then Samuel said here, then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. So let me just pause there. So the Amalekites were Israel's enemies, and recently they have killed tons and tons of Israelites. And here's the king thinking like, what's up, Sam? Like, what's up, man? What's up, bro? Everything's good? Like, come on, let's just let bygones be bygones. Let's put the past behind us. Everything is fine. Let's see if Samuel thought so. In verse 33, Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. The same thing that he did to these giant cattle, he did to Agag. So now you can see why when Samuel comes to this town, what in the world, Samuel, are you doing here? Do you come in peace? So look on in verse 5. He said, peaceably I have come. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate, just cleanse yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. Now, just so you know, when God told uh, Samuel to pick Saul as the king, he told him exactly who the king would be. With this situation, all he said was, he's going to be in Bethlehem, and he's going to be of the son of Jesse. So Samuel starts guessing, okay? And honestly, I think this is exactly the way that we would guess. When you think of a kingly man, you think of a tall strong, mighty man, probably somebody that looks a little bit like me. Bad joke. <laughs> so you think, of a t you think of a tall man, and this is exactly what was the case with King Saul. So the Lord picked Saul, but then the town loved that he picked Saul because it said Saul was so tall, stood a foot above the crowd, was very handsome. And so we look at the outside. Okay, so let's look at what Samuel thought would be, who he thought would be the king in verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So he's the oldest, okay? So normally, the firstborn gets all the rights. Why does the firstborn get the right? Because firstborns are better than the younger brothers. That's right. Are, are the firstborn smarter? Okay, I think so as a firstborn. Do the firstborns have more experience in life? They do. They, 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 not by much. They really are. They tend to be wiser. 
not always, but this is why, because they've lived longer, right? It's not that they're necessarily smarter, okay? So they've just lived a lot longer. And so typically, so Eliab here is Jesse's first son. So when Samuel gets to Eliab, and Eliab's tall and he's strong and he's handsome, and Samuel says, clearly, this has to be Israel's next king. What did the Lord say in verse 7? But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance on the height or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so what he's telling Samuel here is, you think I'm dependent on a man being a strong? I, I could use anyone. I don't need this big, tall, strong man. So what we already see is our expectations, Samuel's expectations, are different than the choices that God makes. They're not aligned at this point. So then he goes on to the next son, okay? And we're in verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab. Y'all have any friends named Abinadab? I do. have a few. Then Jesse called Abinadab, and he made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. This, this kind of reminds me, and I may have a note in your notes, of the Cinderella story. Jesse's son's Cinderella story, I think that's what it says. So what happens in the Cinderella story? Cinderella comes out, she sees the, the is he a prince or a king? The prince, the prince at the ball, okay? She loses her glass. There's a lot of renditions of it, so it's tough to... She loses her glass slipper, okay? Then the prince goes all around the town to bring out the ladies of the town. And he's confused. Where is, where is this woman that wore this glass slipper? And so this is exactly what Samuel is dealing with here. The Lord told me to anoint one of Jesse's sons. Jesse said he's brought out all of his sons, what's the problem? So we see that in verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. So when Jesse was asked by Samuel to bring out all your sons, the youngest son was so young and doing child's work that he didn't even consider him as one to be brought. Let's see what Samuel tells him. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes. What does ruddy mean? It's a strange word. Tan, kind of red, but also gets a little bit at his, the youthfulness. He kind of had rosy, reddish cheeks. So he was ruddy and beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So what we see here is a very unexpected and odd story. Not only does God not take the tall, 
handsome, rugged firstborn. But God doesn't take the secondborn or the thirdborn. He goes down to the eighth son, the least expected choice, and says, that's my king. Why does God do that? He uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. That's better than my notes. So I really, I really like that. He does. God does things differently than we do. He makes different choices than we do. And we see for the rest of David's life that God's hand was on David. The very next section of the chapter, which we won't read, uh, Saul, King Saul, who's still the king at this point, asked for a, a harpist to come and play in his courts. What instrument does David play? He plays the harp. So David is invited in to play in the king's courts, and then David gets to sit under Saul to see his military conquests and learn of him. The very next chapter, the giant of the Philistines. What was his name? Goliath. Everyone in Israel was terrified at him, and David approached him with his slingshot and his stick in his bag, and Goliath mocked him. And he said the same thing, you, you little boy, come at me with your sticks like I'm a dog. I'm going to take your body, I'm going to kill you, and then I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to him, you come at me with swords and spears and shields. I come to you in the name of the Lord. And what did he do? He took a, a, a rock out of his bag and he slung it into the giant's head, took out his own sword and cut off his head. And he did this to make God great, to show that God doesn't need any mighty army. And then lastly, all throughout David's life, David's life is in peril and God saves him time and time again. So while God's hand can clearly be seen in David's life, God had much, much bigger plans for David than David could have ever imagined and than his family could have ever imagined. We're going to go through a, a few uh, passages right now just to show the bigger choices that God had made for David and the bigger plans that he made. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go just one book over to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to be in verse 8. And it says here, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. I took you from nothing, and I made you king. And I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Go down to verse 12. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish, I'm sorry, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so just to pause there, we see 
that the Lord is rising up David. He's using David for something else. He's rising up David for some future throne, for some future kingdom. And he says, and I will be a father to him in verse 14. And he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes and the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Let me just pause there. Saul, as I mentioned earlier, Saul sinned immediately into his, king, into his kingdom, and the kingdom was removed from him. Did David sin? David sinned. We all sinned. But look at what it says here. I will not depart from David in 15, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. We're going to look at two more passages in this section. I'm going to go to the book of Isaiah. And this passage might sound familiar to you. Possibly just read this in the last few weeks. Isaiah chapter 9. In verse 5. And the context here of Isaiah 5 is Isaiah is telling the people of Israel, there's going to be a time that's coming, okay, when things get better, when there's peace on the earth. Well, how is he going to do that? How is he going to bring about peace? Verse 5, it says, Every boot of the trampling warrior, the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. All the things you use for battle, we won't even need them anymore. Why? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is born. Is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. So the prophet Isaiah tells Israel. There's one that's coming that's going to be born a child and a son that sits on the throne of David, and he will bring peace to everyone forever. All right, one, one last verse here. Let's go to the New Testament. So we're going to be in the book of Luke. And we're going to look at chapter 1 and verse 29. And this is Gabriel speaking, the angel speaking to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he says, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And so look, this is the same language, a child and son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So this is what happens. The Lord raises up David, the eighth son, the youngest child, the shepherd, okay? And he says to him, not only am I gonna give you this life here, but I'm going to establish your throne forever to bring about the Messiah. The whole reason why God chose 
and kept David was so that David could bring about the eternal king. You see, David was chosen for this one reason, to reflect the son, to be a pathway from his kingdom all the way to the son. God rose up David so that people would look at the son. Through David, God, the king of Israel, that was removed in the beginning, remember when Israel said that they didn't want their king anymore, was restored as Israel's forever reigning king. Let me ask this question. What about me? What about you? Where do we fit into David's story? Is this just a nice history lesson? Are we a part of this? Go to John chapter 10. Book of John chapter 10. So New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 27. So this is Jesus speaking here. And Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And so who are the sheep of Jesus? What's that? The disciples, the followers of Jesus. And so if if you know Jesus, if you're in relationship with him, then you're a sheep of Jesus. So he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And so the Lord chose David, he kept David so that David would bring about a kingdom This passage right here says that if you're in relationship with God and you've been saved by Jesus, that he keeps you forever. So this is the question, why? Why would God want to keep someone like me? Why would God want to keep someone like you? He does love us, but I I can tell you, you know, I have been, I've been working out a little bit this year. I've been getting a little stronger. It's not because of that. It's not because I'm getting stronger. It's nothing when he looks at me. And it's nothing when he looks at you in and of ourselves, right? There's nothing about us that would make God want to say, yep, because he's stronger or better or smarter or he's the oldest brother or he's the youngest brother, okay? He keeps us for the same reason that he chose and kept David. Let's look at two more passages and then we'll, we'll wrap up. I'm going to go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. So Romans 8, the people here are dealing with just tremendous suffering, and so they're wondering, when's the suffering going to be over? When, when is the Lord coming back? And this is a verse that you guys, uh, many of you will know well. In verse 28 of Romans 8, Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what's the good? Is the good you get a new pair of shoes, you you stub your knee, it's okay because the new pair of shoes is coming to make up for the stubbed knee. Is that what he means here? No. That's my place here. All things work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also be predestined to be conformed to the image 
of his son. So why did God call you? Why did God choose you? To conform you to the image of his son. He chose us and he called you and he saved you so that we would reflect his son, so that we would look just like his son. This is the same reason why he chose David, so that he would point to and reflect the son. In 1 John 3, the apostle John says that he, uh, that when we're with him, we will be made like him because he will see him as he is. See, students, the, the, the whole reason why God would set his sight on a shepherd in Israel, the eighth of the last son. I mean, this is truthfully, this is like <laughs> un, unfathomable to these people. And it's unfathomable that God would come and pick somebody like me. But he did it so that we would reflect him, so that we would look like him, so that we would be conformed to his image. So this is the question, okay? For those of you that know God and are in relationship with him, do you reflect him? When you think about your desires and conversations and you think about the things that you identify with your friends, do you reflect him or are you like Israel back in Samuel chapter 8 that says, you know what? I don't want to look like what God has made me. I want to look like the surrounding nations. And it led Israel to ruin. God has created us and he has made us to look just like him. And this is tremendous hope, isn't it? Look, if, if, if God chose you and he's keeping you, the good news here is that there's nothing that we can do to undo that. There's nothing that we can do that would make God's love of you any less. There's nothing that we can do that would make God's call in your life go away. What kind of peace is that? That I can just live my life reflecting him. I can live my life seeking him. The other thought of this is that there's nothing that we can do to bring God's attention on us more that would make him love us more. Well, you know what? I'm going to be really, really good today. I'm going to try to get really, really good grades today. God's love is the most that it will be for us because he's chosen us to reflect his son, not because of anything in us. Let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your words. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen us to know you. Lord, you've, you've chosen us to be in fellowship with you, Lord, and this is a very unlikely choice. Lord, when I look at my own life and I look at what I bring to the table, Lord, it's, it's nothing. Lord, yet you have chose me to reflect your son. Lord, you've chose me to look like him. Lord, I, I pray for these students and I pray for the rest of their retreat, Lord, that you would sharpen their minds, Lord, focus their attention to see the, the wonderful uh, grace, Lord, that you have extended to us through your son. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Nice. Let's all say thank you to my burrito. One, two, three. We love you, Matt. Extra guac. All right. I don't know if you, can you throw that uh, graphic up?
that, uh, does anyone know what that is? A crown. Y'all grab a seat just for another moment. So the graphic is a crown, and, and so there's an introduction tonight, obviously through that sermon, um, into the choosing of the one day future king, that one day from that future king would come Christ. And so that crown is a representation, obviously, not just of, of King David, but also the King of kings, of all of them, Lord of lords, Jesus. And so, so just be mindful as we kind of go into, to, to, into